first Peter, first Peter, chapter one. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at God's gracious provision that we have received through him uh, for our salvation. And with that salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, we also have received a tremendous hope for the future. Even when we face tremendous challenges and trials. And after assuring the believers of the certainty of God's promises in verses 3 through 12, Peter is now turning his focus on our responsibility as believers to live a life that's worthy of our calling. Peter wants believers to know that despite of all the advantages of salvation, both in this life and eternity, that salvation is not the end game. So many times believers believe that salvation is the end game. That's it. You know, once we're saved, that's, that's all there is. Now we're just going to wait in, until uh, God calls us home. But salvation is not the end. It is actually the beginning of your journey. It is really the first step the last step that you make. Uh, because then we're going to move from salvation to sanctification, where uh, bit by bit, day by day, the Lord is transforming us more and more to be like Christ, more like Christ and less like us, as a matter of fact. That's called the process of sanctification. It's because of who we are in Christ and the power of his indwelling spirit that we're able to live a life that accomplishes God's will and brings him glory. And it's important to remember, especially in turbulent times like we are in today, that believers are not exempt from trials. And in many ways, our trials increase because of our faith. As a matter of fact, the Word of God tells us as believers that uh, if we're pursuing a life of godliness, we will have trials. Not that we might have trials, not that we could have trials. Uh, it is that we will trials because of our faith. Few believers today seek to strengthen their walk in the Lord and live in the light of Christ's holiness. But that uh, is the expectation for all of us, my friends, is that we would live in light of the truth of who we are in Christ. And that with our salvation, with our calling, comes a responsibility to live a life that's worthy of that and that's the subject of this week's text, living a life of holiness in the midst of trials and persecution and suffering. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your word each week. I pray, Lord, as we prayed earlier, that we'll have open hearts and minds, ears to your truth. And as always, Lord, we would just hear the truth and think, well, this would be perfect for somebody else I know, or this would be perfect for the person next to me. But as always, Lord, we would ask ourselves, what would you have me do with this truth? How should I apply it in my life in a way that would bring you honor and glory? Help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. For your honor and your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's remind ourselves, before we get to verse 14, what we learned in verse 13, because that's where the pivot is from 
uh, after verse 12, 3 through 12, about our salvation. Now we pivot in verse 13 about what we're supposed to do. And so because of all the benefits of your salvation, which we learned about in verses 3 through 12, Peter now moves to how we should be thinking and then how we should be responding uh, to all that we have received, especially in the midst of suffering. And you'll recall in verse 13 that there's one main command and then there's a couple participles here that are underneath it, kind of ex that, uh, applied to that main command, okay? And so the, the main command of verse 13 is to fix your hope. That's the primary objective, verse 13. We're to fix our hope. Peter is saying, because we've received such a great salvation, we have a responsibility to live as those who have a great hope, not to live as those who have no hope, which is how the world and notice in our text, we are to do this how? Completely. What is it that we are to fix our hope on? The text tells us that we are to fix our hope on the grace to be brought or being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is Jesus' second coming, which we talked about in depth last week. So Peter is telling us as believers that we have a responsibility to live each day in the hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ that should be our hope. And again, this is not, this is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Hey, if things are going tough, you should be thinking this way. Or hey, if you're really struggling, I suggest you think about Christ and his return. This is not a suggestion, not a recommendation. It's actually a command. It's an imperative. He's saying, fix your hope. Don't get caught up in all the things that are going on around in the world that are meant to kind of trip you up. That are, take the, that are meant to take your eyes off the focus of Christ's imminent return. But as believers, we should be living our life as if Christ could return at any moment. We need to have our hearts and our minds prepared for that to happen. We're to live each day with the confident expectation that every promise God has made about our future will happen. So that's great. Now, well, how do I go about doing that? Well, the first two subordinate commands are having prepared your minds. And uh, the King James Version, I believe, is used the girding up the loins of your mind. Okay? And we talked about that again last week. We're to have our thinking in order so that no doubting fears uh, or doubts or reservations uh, trip us up. And the fact that Peter applies this concept to the mind means that it is the mind, it is the way that we think that is especially important to serving God. The way that we think about as believers has a huge impact on whether or not we're going to fix our hope on Christ or not. It means that through the mind, a person is often tripped up and kept from fixing their hope on Christ and his return. Here's Peter's main point here cannot fulfill our responsibility to live a life of holiness, which is what we'll hear today is the second command in these verses, to be holy. We cannot fulfill our responsibility to live a life of holiness without first fixing our hope on Christ and his return. And we cannot fix our hope on Christ and his return if we've not prepared our minds to be free from all the distractions that this world throws at us. And never is that more difficult to do than when we're in the midst of our trials, when we're in the midst of persecution, when we're in the midst of suffering. 
The battle of not losing hope begins with preparing your mind to not let things like fear and anxiety and worry and stress distract you from the truth of who you are in Christ and the hope you have in Christ both now and in the future. It actually begins here in our minds first. Secondly, Peter adds that beyond preparing your mind, you'll also need to strengthen your will by demonstrating self-control. That's what being sober in spirit means. Peter's second point here is that if you're truly seeking to live your lives in a holy manner, in response to our great salvation, then not only do you need to prepare your minds for the things that could trip us up, you also need to not knowingly put yourself in spiritual danger either. We must exercise self-control, not give in the desire to be like the world, and yet many believers attempt to do just that. We want to wear our Christianity as a badge, but then we also want to be living in the world as well. We want to have one persona that we put on for Sundays, and then we have a Monday through Saturday where we look an awful lot like the world. That's what we want to talk about here this morning in verses 14 to 16, because Peter naturally is going to move from fixing your hope by preparing your minds and exercising self-control in our minds to actions that we must do to act upon that command. And so this is moving from how you should think and respond to this is what you shall do. Which brings us to the second great imperative in our text. The first was fix your hope. The second great command in this text, in verses 13 to 16, is you shall be holy. You shall be holy. Again, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. So let's look together, shall we, in verse 14 of chapter 1. Actually, let's pick it up verse 13, and we'll just kind of roll into verse 14. Therefore, as we talked about last time, all that had been said previously in verses 3 through 12, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So point number one in your notes in verse 14a, we want to look at just the first section here. As children of God, believers have a responsibility to be obedient to him and his word. As children of God, believers have a responsibility to be obedient to him and his word. So right off the bat, we're reminded of this great transformation that happened in our lives at the moment of our salvation. This is what Paul reminded the Corinthians of when they were struggling to live out their faith. Do you remember what he said? He said, you were bought with a price. You are no longer your own. That Jesus shed his life's blood on the cross, redeeming us from sin and placing us into the family of God. And that we have been delivered from a life of bondage and sin. And we have now freedom in Christ. And as believers, we're now called to live our lives in obedience to God his holy word. And just like we as children long to please our earthly father by obeying him, how much more should we desire to obey our heavenly father? Not from fear of losing his love, but because God loves us with his agape love, his love of the 
will is unconditional love and calls us to be like himself. So as children whose father tenderly loves you, do you not long all the more to present yourself to God in a manner that pleases him? Not out of fear of losing his love, but because you love him so much, you just want him to be glorified. You want others to see Christ in you and working through you. That should be the motivation we have as believers to be obedient to God and his word. Please note, this is not legalism. It's, it's an appeal to the faith that God gave you and the new heart that he's put in you. This is a free imitation of the gospel. He's saying, listen, you have been granted this life. Walk in it in a way that brings God glory. This is not an obedience to improve your standing before God. My friends, that was taken care of at the cross. God cannot love you any more than he does now. He cannot love you any less than he does now based upon your performance. This obedience that Peter is referencing is the obedience to the gospel because of our love for him. It's the obedience of faith that Paul is talking about in Romans. Let's take a look at that for just a second. Keep your place in 1 Peter and turn to Romans chapter 1. chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom also you also are the call of Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 19, Romans 16, 19. Paul writes here, For the report of your what? Obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent. And then our obedience to truth is actually back in our text in 1 Peter again. So head back there and look at verse 22. As Peter writes, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for the sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This is the obedience that he's talking about. It's an obedience that's rooted in love. It's an obedience that is rooted in what Christ has done for us and our response in love to his love. That's the obedience that he's talking about. It's an obedience to Christ whose commandments, he tells us in Matthew 11, are not burdensome. Take my yoke. It's light. It's easy. There's a story of a California driver's license examiner told about a teenager who had just driven in an almost perfect test. He only made one mistake, the examiner said. When he stopped to let me out of the car after breathing a sigh of relief, the boy exclaimed, Phew, sure glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book called The Quest for Godliness, talks about the Puritans 
It makes a point that the Puritans did a good job of integrating their Christianity into every aspect of their life, from the most intimate aspects of married life to the most public aspects of political and social life. And he writes, there for them was no distinction, no disjunction, I should say, between sacred and secular. All creation, so far as they were concerned, was sacred, and all activities of whatever kind must be sanctified or made holy, done to the glory of God. I think we've lost that, in a sense, in our culture today. We separate, we, com- we compartmentalize. We say, well, this is my, you know, this, this is the things I do in Christianity, and this is the things I do in the world. We just kind of put them in separate compartments. But what Peter's talking about is there is no such distinction in the word of God as believers, my friends. We are called to live a holy life in whatever we do. Not just when we walk through those glass doors on Sunday, but in all aspects of our life. We are to be holy. We are to be separated. Ones who were called out to walk worthy of this gospel. And I think in our culture today, we've lost sight of the fact that we're to be holy at all times, in all aspects of our life, not just when we gather together. That kind of integrated living eliminates hypocrisy because there's nothing that turns people off more than to see somebody who professes to be a Christian but then whose lifestyle does not match them. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it does mean you need to live with integrity. You need to confess sin when you when you miss the mark, when you biff it. You need to be able to confess that and say, I, I was wrong. I messed up there. I'm sorry. We need to confess to God first, and then we need to confess to each other when we do. We need to make our Christianity practical. Just on Sunday mornings. Sometimes, and I think we forget this, we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And I mean by that is that they'll be looking at your life very closely. And I'm always reminded when on Sunday morning, about the middle of the service, about a quarter of our congregation gets up and goes to junior church. But I'm always reminded also that they are watching very closely, all of us. How do we live out our faith? Because we're teaching them each day that we're together, and not just on Sundays, what's really important in our lives. Just as we learn quite a bit about a father by watching his children, the world learns a lot about our Heavenly Father by watching his children. And that means we must learn to obey our Father in all of life. So point number one, as children of God, believers have a responsibility to be obedient to him and to his word. Notice point number two is the second part of verse 14. As children of God, believers have a responsibility to not be conformed to former lusts, or some of you may have evil desires. This is nearly identical to Paul's message in Romans 12, isn't it? Do not be conformed to this word be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Very similar. 
Don't be like the people of this world, lusting after the things of this world and finding all your value in this world. And I want you to notice what kind of lust these are. Do you notice that? They are what kind of lust? Former lusts. Former lusts. Peter's telling them, you know what I'm talking about here? I'm talking about you used to think the things and the approval of this world were so important that that's how you lived your life. The lust of the eyes. You desired all sorts of possessions. You wanted to make sure that you had the latest and the greatest, that everybody saw uh, just how successful you were being in this world. The lust of the flesh longed for what it could not have. The boastful pride of life longed for the world to center around you and, to, and on you alone. What benefit did you reap from those formal lusts? Those former lusts is what Peter is asking. What is it exactly is it that you gain from it? Because from Peter's perspective and from God's perspective, we were just enslaved to them. We actually thought we were in control, but we were not. We're like a puppet on a string being controlled by our desires. Whatever we wanted, we would justify it for ourselves and then go after it and then try to get it. We thought we were in control when really we were just a slave to our own evil desires. Peter says, they controlled you. They overwhelmed you. James put it, when they had conceived, they gave birth to sin and sin, death. Peter saying, why would you return to that? Why would, be, why would that be something that you would be struggling with? Because now you have freedom in Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. That doesn't mean that you don't struggle with sin. It means it doesn't control you. It's not the guiding force in your life. He says, then you were ignorant. And what he means by that is you didn't know any better. But now you do. So why on earth would you try to go back to something that was so detrimental to you? That ignorance was sinful, and it infiltrated your mind. It prevented you from desiring true food. Jesus says anyone who eats the bread of Christ gives never hungers. Anyone who drinks of the water that Christ shall give him never thirsts again. Come and desire Christ and put these ridiculous former desires away. Keep your place in 1 Peter and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for a second. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 is where we want to pick it up. Ephesians 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Why should you, whose minds have been set on the hope of heaven, want to live in the futility as those who have no hope? That's what Peter's asking here. Why would you ever want to go back to that? I understand it before because you were ignorant of the things of the Lord. In other words, you didn't understand them. You had been exposed to the gospel. You didn't, the gospel truth and that penetrated your heart. But now that you do understand them, why on earth would you desire to go back to those things and abandon the
the glorious hope that you have in Christ. Peter says, you've been freed from all that when you came to Christ. Before you were saved, you never longed for Christ. You never longed for his return. You had no hope but that which was fleeting in the world today. But now, you are no longer uninformed. You know that God has laid up for you in Christ an immense and incalculable treasure. He said, be obedient, children of God, and forego those former lusts. They're worthless. You know, as Christians growing up, into in our knowledge of God, we don't have to be controlled by those former lusts anymore. We make a break with that self-centered living that marked us before we met Christ, and now we live under his lordship over every area of our life. We recognize that there's no area of our life where Christ is not lord over that area. And I think this explains much of the shallow Christianity of our day where people invite Jesus into their heart because they're told that he'll give them an abundant life. He's going to make your life all better. He's going to give you all the desires of your heart. So you need to come to Jesus. He's got to fix all the bad things in your life. And then if they like what Jesus is doing for them, if they feel that their lives are happier now than before, then they let Jesus stay in office, if you will. But they've never made that break with their past lives, my still living two lives. They've never repented of sin or yielded to Christ as Lord of their life. They're still running their own lives, living for the same selfish desires that they formerly lived for. The only difference now is that they're trying to use Jesus as cover so they can submit to their former lusts again. It's a veneer of Christianity that they paint over themselves. That's a real issue. And that's not indicative of someone who's truly surrendered their life to Christ. Not that we all don't have our moments of surrender, my friends. None of us are doing this perfectly. But if this marks a continual habit or lifestyle for you, that's a big spiritual problem in your walk. If this symbolizes how you live each day, if you're still keeping one foot firmly planted in the world and then trying to put this veneer of Christianity over the top of that, there's a much deeper issue going on in your heart that needs to be addressed. Because you're not fooling God who knows every thought, every, heart, every thought of your heart, every intention of your heart. And so we may be able to fool each other for a while, Saving faith involves repentance from our former lust and our selfish desires. It makes a break with those past lifestyles. It seeks to follow Jesus as Lord. So point number one, as children of God, believers have a responsibility to be obedient to God and his word, to him and his word. Point number two, as children of God, believers have a responsibility to not be conformed to former lusts. Let's look back at our text in 1 Peter at verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. 
Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Point number three, as children of God, believers have a responsibility to be holy. Peter's saying, listen, first you have a responsibility to be holy because you're children of God. And your obedience to God should indicate that truth. Second, you have a responsibility to be holy by being conformed more and more to the image of God and less like the world, like you did in ignorance before you were saved. And third, you have a responsibility to be holy because God himself is holy and you are an image bearer of God. To be holy as a Christian means to be Christ-like. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. We are reminded of the holiness of the Lord. And that, my friends, should be very humbling for us. Every believer ought to be aware of the holiness of God, but I fear that we lose that awe and wonder of God today. God's very nature is absolute holiness. He will not fellowship with those who are unholy or tolerate iniquity of any kind in his presence. Sin created separation. And if we're to be reconciled to God, having any opportunity of dwelling in his presence, we too have to be made holy. And the only way that was possible was through the sacrifice of Christ, his son, and his holiness being imputed to our account. The saved are now viewed in light of the holiness of Christ. And we can't minimize sin in the sight of God because God is the example for us. He is the standard of holiness. He is the definition of holiness. And we will never, ever reach that perfectly on this side of glory. But Peter's point is what you should be striving. those who are separated unto him. When sin enters our lives, we must be willing to immediately confess and forsake it. We can't minimize sight in uh, sin in the sight of God. We must strive to follow the example of holiness he has set before us. And notice also that we are to be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That word behavior is another one of those words that Peter uses a lot. I think he uses it six times, six of the 13 New Testament uses are in this epistle right here in 1 Peter and two more in 2 Peter. It refers to conduct or lifestyle. So the Peter here links holiness with behavior, and then he adds that word all. All. Peter is saying our separation unto God is to affect every area of your life private and public. There's no such thing as a secular life that's not sacred for a Christian. To be holy people, we must be growing in our personal knowledge of God's holiness. Notice he says here, like the one who called you, you shall be holy for I'm holy. 
that implies that we know something about who God is. And because as we gain in knowledge of who he is, it helps us in this walk of being holy. And the Christian life is a process of growing to know God more and more as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And the knowledge of the Holy One has this transforming effect on our lives. We can never be as holy as God is holy, since absolute holiness only belongs to him. But we can and must grow in personal holiness as we grow to know God more. I heard of a story once of a man who bought a piece of property, and upon which he planned to build a nice big house. And all that he had to do was level the lot and then remove the rocks off of it, and it would be good to go. And the leveling hap hap that process happened very quickly. Or he bought a bulldozer and soon had the property leveled. But then he had to pick up all the rocks. So initially he used the same bulldozer to pick up all the big rocks on the lot. But after that, he picked up all the large boulders. This exposed the fact that there were hundreds of medium-sized rocks on the lot. And so those rocks he began to pick up by hand. And then as he worked for hours picking up all the medium-sized rocks, it exposed the fact that there were now thousands of smaller-sized rocks all throughout the lot as well, which he would not have to do. And then as he began to pick up all those smaller sized rocks, there were, there were pebbles that were too numerous to count that were suddenly being exposed. And those too would have to be picked up. However, that effort would take a considerably longer period of time to do. In the same way, my friends, when we come to Christ, when we first come to know the Lord, he immediately bulldozes kind of the big sin those really happy. I gotta stop doing that. And then as we begin to walk with the Lord and read his word, the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of ever-increasing medium-sized rocks in our life, and those need to be addressed as well. And then finally we realize that although we'll spend our entire life picking these rocks out of the lot of our life, if you will, and that more and more areas of our life don't match up with God's holiness, must all be committed to try and get even the smallest pebbles. That's what Peter is trying to tell us. That the more we know God, the more we rely on his presence, the more that we trust him, the more that God will expose. But because of our love for him and his love for us, strive to do that. We'll never be perfectly holy on this side. God doesn't expect that. But what he does want from each of us is a heart that's willing to expose even the smallest pebbles and then take action to strive to be holy. You're not even going to do that in your own power because God has given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to be able to see these things, convict you of them, and then empower you to be able Beloved, we'll never achieve sinless perfection in this life, but we must strive to obtain it. And every believer is expected to strive for holiness in this life. We must notice this isn't limited to just Sunday mornings or while attending church services. We're to be holy in all aspects of our life. In essence, every thought, every action, every deed must be done in the light of holiness for God. And even though our society today cares nothing for the ways of God and reject his holiness, must remain obligated to live upright for him. In fact,
fact, the need, I think, is greater today than any other time in our nation's history. Those around us need to experience and interact with true believers who are striving to live holy lives and are transparent when we fall short and show what repentance looks like and show a desire to live for the Lord. I think a lot of damage has been done to the cause of Christ by those who profess a relationship with him, but then their actions reveal something completely different. I pray that we would live upright for the Lord in the midst of this generation. My friends, here's our main points from our text. We cannot fulfill our responsibility to live a life of holiness without first fixing our hope on Christ. We cannot fix our hope on Christ and his return if we've not prepared our minds to be distractions the world is going to throw at you. And you have lots of distractions right now, especially. And never is that more difficult to do than when we're in the midst of trials in our life. And the battle of not losing hope begins with preparing your mind, not letting things like fear and anxiety and worry and stress distract you from the truth of who you are in Christ and the hope you have in Christ. Don't lose sight matter what is going on around us. Never forget, you're a child of the King. And that never changes. And God's promises are just as true today as they were yesterday and the day before. And they will be forevermore. And as believers, we need to be living our lives like that. And one of the ways that we do that, my friends, is by striving to live a holy life. And we strive to live a that by knowing him more, not less. When things are going crazy in the world, the tendency is to put your Bible aside and dive into all of the things that are going on around the world. But the Bible tells us actually do just the opposite. Just tune that stuff out. It wasn't helpful before you were saved, and it's not helpful after you were saved. But instead, fix your friends, Jesus is still on the throne. That hasn't changed. And that's where our focus and our hope needs to be. Be holy. You shall be holy. Well, I pray that that is your heart's desire, my friends. Just to be a shining beacon of hope in a world that's desperately seeking hope. And that you're striving Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Sometimes it's hard for us, Lord, to hear these challenges to our walk, and we, Lord, kind of kind of recoil back sometimes as we get our toes stepped on about that. There are areas in my life where I'm perhaps more worldly and less holy than I should be. There are times when I get caught up in the things of the world and forget who I am in Christ. There are times where fix my hope on something other than you, Lord. And when that happens, I pray, Lord, that we would repent of that. That we would seek